0: You know, you can't declare yourself a leader. Others would have to be following you of their own volition. You can be appointed to positions of responsibility, but that doesn't mean you're a leader.
1: Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. And today I'm joined by Clark Quinn, the executive director of Quinnovation, which partners with organizations so they can take their performance to the next level. In addition to his work at Quinnovation, Clark is a thought leader who leverages his diverse background in learning and development, technology, and cognitive neuroscience to really push the boundary of the learning and development field forward. You can read more about some of his ideas and innovations in his books. He's written seven so far. The most recent, Make It Meaningful, sheds light on how emotions impact learning and can effectively be brought into L&D programs to improve success. One thing I appreciate most about Clark is his passion for data and evidence-driven practices. As a former economist myself, I really appreciate the rigor he brings to organizational development and to our conversation today. There's a lot of great insights and practices that you can take into your own organization regardless of your size, your role, or your strategic focus for the year. So I'm really excited to share those with you. Without further ado, let's dive in. All right. Well, thank you so much, Clark, for joining me on another episode of Empowered Leadership. How's your day going?
0: My day is going pretty good. Thank you, Alexandra. And a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Thank you.
1: Well, as you know, the name of the show is Empowered Leadership. So the first question I always like to ask my guests is, what does Empowered Leadership mean to you?
0: (laughs) And I suppose I should qualify my statement saying that I don't think of myself as a leadership expert, by the way. But to me, empowered leadership is two things. And the first one is that it's earned. You know, you can't declare yourself a leader. Others would have to be following you of their own volition. You can be appointed to positions of responsibility, but that doesn't mean you're a leader. And then the second thing that seems to me important is that you're actually following leadership principles that have evidence that they are appropriate, that you are doing things ethically. There are some leaders who lead by fear, other mechanisms that I don't approve of. But what we do know is that good leadership, there are practices that lead people to want to follow and lead to the best outcomes. And that, to me, would be the second part of empowered leadership. You've earned it and you're practicing it in the best ways.
1: Yeah, I love that notion of evidence-based or research-based, like we're not just doing something because it feels good or maybe we've seen other people do it, but we're doing it because it's a practice that has some research and some evidence behind it. We know it works.
0: Well, we'd like that. Look at Jeffrey Pfeffer's book, Leadership BS. And he talks about a lot of things that are being done in the name of leadership development that do make people feel good. And there's little evidence that they actually are traits of effective leadership. So we would like to ultimately move towards those practices that have demonstrable success.
1: I love that idea. Before we talk too much more, I want to give you a chance to share with people who are listening who may not be familiar with your work and the title you have. Could you please define what is a learning organization?
0: To me, well, a learning organization is an organization that continues to learn. As individuals, we should continue to learn. I tend to think of if you're not deaf, you may as well be, because otherwise our brains just are wired to continue to test our expectations against the world. You know, and the only other thing you could do is just hide away and stay in a warm, dark room and hope nothing disturbs your model of the world. But we don't get to live in that world. We still have to. No, eat. not at all. do a few other things. <laughs> so we need to learn. And organizations similarly. Particularly in this era of increasing change, I suggest that the ability to execute the things you know you need to do is only the cost of entry going forward. And the only Mm -hmm. sustainable differentiator will be the ability to continually innovate. And to me, innovation is learning. When you do troubleshooting, when you do design, when you do research, you don't know the answer when you start. By definition, they're learning. It's just that there isn't anybody with the answer, like informal learning. So it's an informal form of learning. And yet it's still learning. And there are practices that we know from our individual and collective cognitive architecture that work better for doing this. And yet too often we see organizational practices that interfere with the most effective learning. I was turned on to a book by Jennifer Mueller called Creative Change that talks about how organizations say they want innovation then effectively mm-hmm. stifle it. Researchers, Garvin Edmondson and Gino, for instance, wrote an article documenting the dimensions of a learning organization that were empirical or elements that they found contributed to the success of the ability to organizations to learn.
1: For people who aren't familiar with that research based on your experience, what you've read about the topic, what are those most important characteristics of a learning organization or the ingredients to success?
0: It starts with concrete practices, knowing, for instance, what makes good brainstorming. There were some articles several years ago saying brainstorming doesn't work. Well, the original proposal for brainstorming doesn't, but small modifications that align with how our brains work make it work. How do you interoperate with others? What is good, smart experimentation versus dumb experimentation? What is a tolerance for risk? So there's practices. On top of that is the leadership that I argue not just has to support this, But they have to actually model it, walk the walk. Mm -hmm. Because if your boss tells you, for instance, learn out loud, make mistakes and share the learnings, and they don't really believe it's safe to do. (laughs) And then atop of that is the culture. Things like not just tolerating diversity, but actually valuing it, recognizing that the different viewpoints from a non-homogeneous group, action will populate different areas of potential solutions you wouldn't get if everybody thought alike. Being open to new ideas, not squelching and saying, no, that's not what we do here or having no tolerance for risk. Time for reflection. There's evidence that you could work all day. If you worked a little bit less than all day, say, you know, one hour less and spent that time reflecting, overall, you're more productive than if you worked the whole time, which is counterintuitive. But that time and reflection, improving yourself leads to improvements over time that overwhelm the small basis of working without reflection. And the one that really is critical to me is psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Here we're talking about, is it safe to express an opinion that is out of perhaps the mainstream? I like to talk about the Miranda organization, where anything you say can and will be held against you, nobody's (laughs) going to contribute their best (laughs) ideas in such an environment, right? So you want to make it a place where if you share, you focus on the idea, not the person. It's not where anything you say will held against you, but instead your ideas will be recognized for being diverse, even if they end up being wrong. That's OK. It's better to have wild ideas than have no ideas.
1: Yeah. So I'm hearing the three buckets of things organizations need to be an effective learning organization is really clarity on. What are the practices that enable us to learn? How do our leaders support that by modeling the way, actively encouraging it, holding people accountable, et cetera? And then what's the culture? that we need to build to support that. So what are the policies that we need to put in place, like values, and then how do we consistently reinforce those policies so that we're able to do the practices and leaders are able to reinforce those with consistency, which if people have been listening to this show know that that's always the number one ingredient to a healthy culture is clarity and consistency on how you set and reinforce expectations.
0: Yeah. And nobody's saying it's easy. You can institute the practices and get some benefits, but you're not going to get the full benefits until you change the culture to one. And that's not easy. Cultural change is hard. It goes against the way things are done. It challenges some people. So there can be resistance. I heard a change expert speak and he said something that I found really interesting. He said, there's this myth that people resist change. He says, People change all the time. They make changes in their lives. They get married. They have kids. They move. They take a new job. The difference is they choose those Mm -hmm. changes. So people resist changes that are forced upon them. But if you make it a choice, you say, we could do this or we could do this. And if you do that right, it's pretty obvious this new one is better than that old way of doing things. You can get their commitment to the change, but then recognize it won't just magically change. We're not formal logical reasoning beings. You can't just give us new information while change our behavior, right? You need to put in place reinforcements for the right behavior evangelism of going on. He argued for two SWAT teams, one for the things you know will go wrong and one for the ones That will come up that you didn't expect and yet. (laughs) Yeah, I think that made a lot of sense. Right. But culture change can happen, but it's not a magic miracle thing of just dropping in a new leader or something. It takes a lot of work and explicit planning and leadership is a critical part of it, but it's not the only part.
1: Well, you need strategy. I mean, you yeah. need clarity on where are we going? What does success look like? How are we going to get there? And then what exactly are we going to do when? What are the milestones, et cetera? So I mean, it takes strategy and then it takes leaders to implement it.
0: Well, as you pointed out, that consistency. So you have clarity of where mm. you're going and then consistent movement in that direction. And with people are working out of alignment with the new direction, how do you deal with that inappropriate mechanisms?
1: Yeah. So I think it's probably clear to most leaders that making any change, like creating a learning organization, one of the biggest barriers is going to be effective change management. Because anytime you're doing a culture change, it's a long term thing. It's going to take work. People are going to get out of bounds sometimes and you're going to need to have a way that you hold people accountable and bring them back in. And I think a second barrier that comes up as I listen to you talk about what it takes to be a learning organization is really acknowledging and embracing that we need to let go of some of our drive toward productivity to enable space for absorbing new information, reflection, so our subconscious can connect the dots and Mm -hmm. start to gather and generate new insights, and then to explore what if. What could we do with that new insight and not need it to be generating a rapid value or return on investment? I'm curious, how does that resonate with you as a challenge that you might have seen with your clients? And if it does resonate, how do you help organizations and leaders to really reconcile that?
0: I have seen it and it is a challenge. You have to help educate the people involved, the stakeholders. And I argue strongly that you need to be prepared to have multiple arguments. I don't mean multiple arguments with people, different ways of approaching different people. So some people may be swayed by the logical argument. And Mm -hmm. so you explain why, what evidence we have that this is the right way to go. Other ones, you're going to have to use anecdotes, personal anecdotes that explain stories you can tell about how you've seen this productive change or stories about others. And then you may have to tap into their own personal experience. Remember, when was a time you saw really successful experimentation and adaptation and a new strategy? What made that work? And you unpack that with them. And statistics about what is known as sort of a complement to the first one, the sort of theory pit point. And then what competitors are doing. <laughs> All of these different angles. You want to have them to hand and then use them when you're dealing with people to figure out which one they're going to resonate with and which one's going to be effective. There's also the it's easier to get forgiveness and permission. A lot of my work is with the L&D group in an organization, Mm -hmm. and I suggest they need to get that learning organization working within their own unit to truly understand how it works in their organization before they could successfully take it out. And I think that's true, that somewhere somebody needs to be doing that within the organization as a leader of a business unit before it goes throughout the whole organization. And then they have concrete evidence. It is working here. We've documented it. Here's the practices we use. Here's how it works in our particular organization. And here's how we can bring it forward. I think taking ownership and understanding it by doing it is really important. And to your point of the leaders, they can't just be evangelizing it. They have to model it. So one of yeah. the critical elements I suggest is the need to communicate. And my colleagues, people like Mark Britz and Blade J. Cross and others, talk about how conversations are the stem cells of learning. And what you want to do is unblock the flow of information. Too many times people say, oh, you know, we can't share it. Well, we certainly want to share it within the organization. And Jane Bozar, wrote the book, Show Your Work. Absolutely. Make what you're doing visible so, A, people can align with it. B, they can help improve it if they see opportunities and they can learn from it if they don't. Another colleague, Harold Jarkey, has his personal knowledge mastery at the individual level. You seek to get the right information that comes in and you filter that because there can be too overwhelming. So how do you choose the right sources of information? The same thing, you don't want to share too much. What's the right thing to share and when? But he then says, you make sense of it. You put it into practice, you try it out, you experiment with it. When you understand it and you've got a handle on what sense you've made of it, then you share it out and this becomes a cycle. And then people comment on that and it comes back around and you've got their feedback on it, which it becomes this virtuous loop. That's the type of thing you want to get going in an organization. So it's the communication, which is part of your clarity that you mentioned, is having that there and then the consistency of that sharing. The evidence suggests to me that that is a critical element to the success of creating a learning organization as people learning out loud.
1: Yeah, and that topic of sharing and knowledge management comes up a lot in organizations, especially large ones. Well, what have you seen work well when it comes to knowledge management and sharing out of those learnings that people are doing in their day-to-day work or maybe in their teams in those small environments?
0: Several different stories. So the reason I was laughing is one of the quickest way to find out you don't have a safe culture is to put a social media platform in. And when people aren't sharing on it, suddenly you realize that we may not have a good culture for this. I reminded many, many years ago, I was a grad student, I did an engagement one summer with this company. They were run by ex-military, and this was the very early days of technology platforms. And they got what these days we would call an ERP, enterprise resource platform. They had an IT solution, except the executive said, I want you to shut off that email capability. We don't want email going on. We don't want people sharing messages about parties and stuff. I mean, can you imagine today doing without email? You might like to, I know people (laughs) who do, but I mean, these people had phones, it wasn't like you were going to be able to cut off communication. That sort of mentality is absolutely antithetical to being successful in this. And what practices I have seen work, I remember I did an engagement with a large manufacturing organization and they said, we want to know what different social things are happening within the organization. So I went around and communicated with a bunch of different people and found practices that were happening that were interesting and yet nobody else knew about them. And so they couldn't collectively leverage the benefits of what was learned. I remember one of particular really struck me. What they were doing required ever increasingly complex software. And so the people who use this software were expecting the learning department to develop training around that software. And eventually the learning department said, look, there's more software we're buying and it's getting more complex and our resources aren't growing to increase it. So what they did was they devolved the responsibility for that updating the information about that software to the people who were using it. And they, instead of owning it and controlling it, they instead facilitated making it effective. And that, to me, a lot of informal learning is not about trying to own it any longer. It's curating it instead of creating it. And it's facilitating effective processes instead of having to own them and control them. And I think that's increasingly what we're going to see is important. Everybody goes, oh, well, people can now Google things. They don't need to go to courses. They may not be good at Google. There's a lot of evidence. There's this myth of the digital native, and yet they looked at kids versus adults and doing things like quality of their search and how well they evaluated the hits they got from the search, and they found out no significant difference. Turns out that's a myth. One of my books is on the myths that populate learning and development in particular, but some of them are true across organizations.
1: Hmm. Something you shared in there sparked, I think, an important question that a lot of people might have who want to start building a learning organization or go on that journey, but it's new for them. And that what sparked it was this trade-off between control and facilitation. And the question that arose for me is, when leaders think about building a learning organization, should they be pointing learning in specific directions, like we want you to learn about X, or we want learning in these areas? Or do you find it's typically more successful for leaders to say, we want to build a culture that embraces learning. We want you to spend generally this amount of time doing learning. We want you to share out what you learn. But what you choose to learn about, we'll trust you to get curious and point that curiosity in a productive direction.
0: I very much err on the side of the ladder. I remember with my colleague, the late great Jay Cross, who wrote the fabulous book, Informal Learning. Before that, we tried to interest organizations in what we called meta-learning. We created the meta-learning lab, or learning to learn. And he argued, and I agree, sort of a back-on-the-envelope calculation, if you could just improve your organization and the individual's ability to learn by 10%, think of the big impact that could have on your organization. And we know... We have a lot of evidence that the folk psychology about what's effective learning isn't reflected in what the evidence tells us. We know that, for instance, just highlighting stuff in books isn't useful. Just taking notes of what's said verbatim aren't useful learning techniques, and yet lots of people continue to replicate them. So... I strongly believe that what L&D should do, what facilitators of learning in the organization should do is facilitate people's ability to learn and let them choose what they need to learn about. Trying to decide for the organization what everybody's areas of focus should be, that's at another level. We could spend a lot of time going into the flaws in current LMD, but we won't go there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of movement, some positive, some not as much. I want to go back to that point around organizational design, because I do think we're at this precipice where there's just so much opportunity for leaders to be using organizational design, which is kind of your bluntest tool in your OD tool toolbox to really make some positive changes in how things are done and the results that are had. And I think you touched on the power of creating teams and individual role and responsibility profiles that give people ownership. In my experience, that's a model I often work with leaders to implement that not only gives people ownership over their work, which leads to a greater sense of purpose, But it also promotes learning because people now feel like I've got choice in how I choose to approach driving outcomes. And as soon as I have choice, that will start to prompt my curiosity around, should I do this or that? And all of a sudden, now I've got some space to explore learn and make a more informed decision. So I think one under discussed aspect, at least in the conversations I often have around learning is just when you give people ownership, how that will create curiosity and create learning without you ever having to do much dollars and cents investment in your people. If we were to take a step back a moment and you were talking to a leader who wasn't sold on creating a learning organization. What might be a couple client stories or case studies that you would share that would inspire people to think maybe there's something in here that I should consider and pursue in my own organization?
0: Well, a couple data points I might use. So I tend to err on the evidence based argument as opposed to the anecdotes or whatever. But Towards Maturity was an entity set up by the British government. And what it did was it collected evidence of how organizations were using technology to support learning. And they ended up having a lot of recommendations, but one of the things they did was looked at the organizations that were most mature in their practices, and this included effectively being a learning organization. And they looked for evidence and found that the more an organization was mature on their scale of moving towards a learning organization, the better the outcomes of that organization. In other words, the more it was effective, profitable, all those sorts of good things. Another piece of evidence, so way back when Marsh Connor organized the Creating a Learning Culture conference, and one of the speakers was Lori Bassey, who has a company. And what she did was she evaluated companies for their value as an investment. And what she found similarly to maturity was that organizations that were more evolved in terms of their learning organization characteristics were better investments. In other words, (laughs) the more you're a learning organization, the more successful you are. And these are, to me, not just individual stories, but actual collective evidence that this is the right way to go. Yeah.
1: You know, I will say, I asked for a story, but I've been on my own learning journey. I do a lot of content generation as part of my marketing, and I'm a data person, and a research person at heart. I was an economist for seven years and I used to think data had all the answers and people just needed the right data to make the right decision. And if they had the data, they'd do the right thing. And I was so disappointed to find out that's never how it worked.
0: We are are not formal logical reasoning beings, no.
1: Yeah, it took me longer than I'd like to admit to learn that. And so as I've been working through how to generate content that lands better. I found it really interesting that the things that resonate most with people and lead to the most conversations are often the pieces of content that I share that have the fewest data points and the most visceral story or connectable story. And that's been a real lesson for me in what prompts people to learn themselves. And it start to open up to a different perspective. And often it's not data. It's a story that they connect into.
0: I'm worse. I don't even go to data. I tend to talk theory. So I'm still learning what you've (laughs) learned. I was just prepping for a webinar we're giving tomorrow. And then we're saying, you know, maybe at this point, having a concrete example would help. You know, you're right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. If you're in a field where you're consistently pushing the envelope and thinking about, okay, what's the next horizon of what's possible. I do that in the strategy, OD, and leadership world. You live in theory because you haven't seen the practice yet. Or maybe you've seen bits and pieces, but nobody's really brought it together. And It can be hard sometimes when you get really excited about this abstract idea of like what's possible. It can be hard to figure out how to pull it into a more concrete reality. I can empathize with that.
0: I found Richard Rummelt's book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, interesting. He looked at strategy very carefully and What he said is it's very much like science. You have this hypothesis about what an organization needs to do, and you put in place strict practices to take that direction. But then you also have to be collecting data to see if you're right and changing direction. So it's a mix of theory and practice. But you're right. You don't know what you're doing when you begin. There's a degree of uncertainty. You have to have, I think, some confidence And yet you can err on the side of overconfidence. I think we've seen too much evidence of that.
1: (laughs) You know, I've thought a lot about this, being a business owner myself and going on that journey of starting my own business. There are so many moments that it feels hard. You're not sure is the work I'm doing going to yield results. And it's not just confidence in my experience. It's, I think, also faith (laughs) and trust. And I think there has to be a little bit of not blind faith, but faith that if we're doing the right thing, i.e. we have a purpose. That purpose is about adding value, not just making money. And we've got a good hypothesis around how we can do that. And we're going to run a good experiment that we can learn from that it's all going to work out. Mm -hmm. You may not get the results you want, but you have faith that you're going to learn what you need to learn to move forward in that journey, even if that journey takes you somewhere else.
0: Yeah. And you try not to risk too much when you do that. So you constrain risk. That's the problem organizations get wrong. They want no risk. And you have to I was going to
1: say, s- that's the problem. Most leaders take no risk and it's because the organization won't incentivize it.
0: Right. And yet an organizations should accept it. That was one of the elements of the Garvin-Edmondson Ingenial Learning Organization dimensions was experimentation is some experiments fail and you need the right proportion of failure for learning to happen optimally you need some failure to be able to learn. That whole thing with error-free learning that was a phase in the 50s was really not a viable learning strategy, partly because it took too long. (laughs) But also, it was still predicated on this belief that we're formal logical reasoning, I and mean, we have some error built into our architecture. It's evolutionarily adaptive that if we make some mistakes, we do a few things randomly differently. And if they're actually better, we'll get feedback and can kind of gradually learn from that and adapt our behavior. And so thinking that we can do rote things and have no error is just a myth. And actually to learn and get better, you have to try new things and have some tolerance for risk. But what you want is that smart experimentation where you know what you're going to do with either answer. It worked or it didn't work. Did Each you- of them tell you something, then it's probably a worthwhile experiment. And you also still want to do it as cheaply as possible. So yeah. starting a new business is hard but it's not entirely new. Other people are doing a similar business, right? So you have some stuff and oh, I can get the basics going and start getting a baseline or revenue But what can accelerate that? Let you try this, let me try that. Mm -hmm. Your content marketing experiments, right? You're experimenting, trying to improve.
1: Yeah. Maybe a key takeaway that's bubbled up for me around learning that I hope leaders would take away from this conversation is that there are two types of learning to be thinking about and trying to foment in your organization. And one is the intentional learning around our business model. So being really thoughtful around where do we want to go, what's the hypothesis we're going to test, and what's the experiment we're going to run, and how will we learn from it? So that's that directional learning around the business model. And then there's that organic, non-directional learning that we talked about earlier, where you're saying, okay, how do we create a culture of learning putting into place those practices, that leadership and those policies so that we're giving people space to just learn on the job. And we expect it'll probably yield a lot of incremental insights and improvements, but maybe we'll get some really big transformational ahas. But it sounds like there's really those two key types that ideally you want to have strategies for both.
0: Well, actually, think of three types of learning. The first one is the formal learning that says these are the things we know we need to do well. Let's create training. And sometimes job aids are better than training. So that's the formal. Then there's the informal learning. But actually, I talk about fast and slow learning. So the fast learning is when you assign a team, Okay, I want you to go away and come up with our new product or go away and figure out why our error rate is higher than it should be or why our time to close deals is too long. And then there's what Dan Ping talked about, and I think of as slow learning, which is just the stuff that emerges from creative interaction. So mm-hmm. Jay pulled out from some evidence somewhere that says you put the mail room and the coffee room together. So even if people don't drink coffee, they're coming for the mail and people are coming for the coffee from different departments and they have conversations and you get that serendipity and you have the adjacent possible. So there's these other things that are nearby that you're exposed to when you have continual conversations and you facilitate people learning outside their job as well, because they may be bringing in something interesting from an adjacent field. In the learning field, for instance, a lot of the practices that we now follow originally came from user interface design. Mm-hmm. So what happened, my PhD thesis was in a group that was doing interface design, designing for how people think. My twist on it was designing for how people learn. But I made a lot of mileage out of bringing those practices in and talking about them to the learning folks. And similarly, Agile is being used in learning that came from software development. And you want to be facilitating those sparks. And yet those are in many ways emergent. So you want to make that possible as well. Part of the learning organization is doing those practices for that fast learning but also creating an environment and practices for that slow learning to also percolate, ferment, mm-hmm. incubate, pick your metaphor.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a similar construct, slightly different framing. Mm-hmm. I love that. So as we get close to the end of our time together, I have one final question I always love to ask my guests, which is what's one piece of conventional leadership wisdom you think is outdated and should be replaced?
0: It would be that, leadership is one thing, that it's all about being transparent and empathetic and stuff instead of adapting to context. But actually, we've covered that already. And I want to break up another one that I've hinted at, but I want to make more explicit. There was the view when we made the transition from behaviorist to cognitive psychology, Behavioral psychology said we couldn't know what goes on in the head. We can only look at stimuli and responses. Mm-hmm. But the cognitive revolution said we can look at what's in the head. And they built models of what they thought was going on in the head. And they built them on computers. And they used computers as a metaphor. And therefore, a lot of the models said we are formal logical reasoning beings, a phrase you've heard me use several times today. In the 80s, there was a sort of a post-cognitive revolution. We realized that we're not these formal logical reasoning beings. And you can look now at Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You can look at behavioral mm-hmm. economics research for economics and that sort of thing, and you'll find out that we're not. And yet a lot of organizational practices and policies are still essentially based on that model. If I give people yeah. new information, they'll change their behavior. I can give a training that's a bunch of information dump on bullet points, and people will change their behavior. I can give feedback on an annual or semi-annual basis with a review, and that will lead to successful change in behavior. And one person could go away and make the decision for everybody as long as they have the right data. All of these are mistaken in practice. We find out that uh-huh. they don't work and yet they're still instituted in organizations. So I guess the practice I would like to see the leadership advice is that stop treating people like machines, (laughs) risk <laughs> their people. Put that Taylorism away. My first offspring was working in a job and he was expected to follow around people and see if they were taking the right amount of time to do things. Just maniacal. What? This is the 21st century for crying out loud. Oh, it's, I've seen those. <laughs> yeah. It's a horrible environment in which to work yeah. and it doesn't lead to the best outcomes. And of course, that company is having trouble recruiting new people. I mean, it's just a bad situation. So That's the piece of advice is, again, stop treating people like machines and recognize the wonderfulness of the human being. And there are these wonderful formological devices we have that complement us perfectly. They do what we don't do well and we do what they don't do well. Together, we're far more formidable. Figure out how to get that integration to be as optimal as possible.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head and it gets back to something I often share in my thought leadership or with clients. And that is if you want to be a truly high performing organization, probably the number one investment you need to make is in equipping your managers to be better leaders because people are not machines and each of us has our own unique set of needs, goals, Motivators, And if you want to get the most from your people and retain them, then you've got to figure out who is that unique person and how do we support them so that they can achieve that sense of meaning and purpose, achieve their goals, and they have that support they need. And so it all comes down to the manager.
0: I fully agree. And speaking of evidence, the biggest reason people leave is bad managers.
1: I think Gallup often uses the statistic, and it's that 70% of the variation in employee and team performance is attributable to the quality of the manager. Wow. 70% of performance variation. If that's not enough of a business case, I don't know what
0: is. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that statistic. Thank you for sharing. That's fabulous. And I absolutely agree.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Clark, and lots of great insights and wisdom to share for leaders tuning in.
0: A pleasure, Alexandra. And I enjoyed it. I learned a lot too.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for joining me on another episode of Empowered Leadership. If you'd like to connect with Clark, you can find him on LinkedIn. The link to his profile, as well as his website for Quinovation, can be found in the show notes. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidences and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's opastrategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.